Jeff has asked us to mark song number 31, and we're certainly delighted and excited to do that. The singing is so encouraging, so uplifting. It's a great thing to be able to lift our voices together after the pattern of which we read in the New Testament. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. God gave us voices. He's blessed us with that. Some better than others. I'm on the lesser end of that, but certainly it's enjoyable to try. You and I look forward to singing the song of Moses and the Lamb someday. Revelation 15, verses 2 through 4. And on that grand occasion, our voices will blend in perfect unison and in marvelous, unending harmony as we have opportunity to encircle the throne of God forevermore. In Romans chapter 15, verse number 4, the inspired writer, there had these words for you and for me to consider. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. As Paul made a reference to those things written aforetime, he had in view those matters contained in the Old Testament. And he was very careful, wasn't he, to assert that it's not as though we live beneath the rigid structure of those things, but we do, of course, find many patterns and principles and precepts. And such has been the case, as you and I of late have turned our attention to the book of Lamentations. Last Sunday evening, we began a brief series of lessons on that Old Testament book. As we did that, <clears throat> excuse me, as we did that, we looked at some very brief lessons I've entitled there at the top of this slide. Lessons reminding us that sin is not something that God overlooks. That lesson is just as timely and as needful now as it was then. There are those people of Israel, those individuals that had a connection to God, but they had veered from it and they had disobeyed. And they found as a result of that that into captivity they went. We also noticed with some care about the features of that book of Lamentations and the marvelous character of its, its author, namely Jeremiah. As we come tonight to a continuation of that series, it's fair to say that the book only has five chapters. We looked at basically the first two chapters last week. Tonight, why don't we journey through the remainder of the book of Lamentations seeking to highlight some of the treasures we find in that book and using them in a way to prompt us to greater, more diligent service. Surely, as we come to the bottom of that slide, our whole goal when we study the Old Testament, surely, is to appreciate what principles are there that can be of such great benefit to you and to me even today. Without further ado, why don't we then take a step forward and look at some of the next matters to be found in this book. As I studied the book of Lamentations, I was rather remarkably reminded, and as students of the Word of God, none of us would find it surprising or shocking in the least. We are reminded time and again just how enormous and just how great sin is. We live in an age and in a time that seemingly always tries to belittle sin as if it is trivial, as if it is not that big a concern. But Lamentations, perhaps as much as any Old Testament book, shines the spotlight on sin and highlights that it is not trivial, it is not minor, yea, it is something so significant that let's develop that thought this way. Consider yourself a member of the ancient people of Judah for just a moment. Here you were, you had enjoyed a time of release from Egypt centuries and centuries earlier. 
And yet, as you had come forward to this particular point, you had enjoyed kings like David and Solomon. You had known about the prophets and others who had labored with such might and power. And yet now you had heard this recent prophet like Jeremiah cast a spotlight that we're going to captivity. Many of the people thought that could never happen because we're God's people. He will take care of us. And He will always ensure that we are protected and preserved. They had forgotten what happened in the days of the judges. They had forgotten what happened in the times when ten of the tribes, you might remember, rebelled. May I submit to you, we could ask it like this. Why did God allow this people to be punished so severely? Why didn't He turn His eye toward them in a way that would ultimately have only maybe had a year or two captivity? Why was it 70 years? May we be quick to submit. There was a dramatic lesson that they needed to learn. And among other things, the lesson was sin is not a little thing because God is not a little God. Sin is a violation of His law. And so long as God's not little, sin is not either. Isn't it true that sometimes we tend to think, those about us at least, that little white lies sometimes aren't so bad? Or merely misleading others or deception of others isn't as terrible as other things. May we submit, we ought to rethink perhaps some of those ideas. Any sin is enough to damn one's soul, isn't it? Any sin is enough to bring one into a state of separation from God. Israel, Judah perhaps we should say, needed and needed badly to learn that lesson. As we develop that thought more thoroughly, look at some of the remarks we find in the book of Lamentations itself. They're about the middle part of that slide. Lamentations 1 verse number 1. A state of solitariness had come upon the city of Jerusalem. A solitariness so extreme and so severe that the whole city was, it seems, without friend, without help, without aid. March forward with me into chapter number 2. Starvation had come upon them. Even the ones who had not gone into captivity, the ones left behind, were starving to death, many of them. The little children were such that their mothers couldn't provide them with any food to eat. Sounds very difficult, doesn't it? Beyond that, in Lamentations 2 verse 21, the gruesome deaths that we find described in those verses. To that I would add quickly Lamentations 4 verses 4 and 5. The sore state of affliction that had come upon them and seemingly was going to be with them for at least a little time. That affliction maybe leads us to the last one. Lamentations 1 verse 3, there was an enemy. An enemy that was no longer with them, but yet an enemy that came against them and brought great forces. As you look at all those things with me, it's easy to see that the people of Judah, for their sin, were paying a heavy, heavy price. If only you and I could forever remember that thought today and instill it within our children and those of the next generation so that sin would not seem to be a minor thing, but it would always recognize it for what it is. To develop that more thoroughly, notice that Judah didn't understand this. We each remember some of that of which they had been guilty. They would follow false gods. They would worship in inappropriate and vain ways and thought little of it. How often did God tell them, You have gone out to every green tree. 
That's a biblical Old Testament way of identifying idolatry. The groves and the various pillars they would erect beneath the green trees was places where false worship was occurring. Question, is there any temptation to false worship today? Are there those who still are following a pathway that leads, of course, to vain and inappropriate worship? Sure there are. May we say, as you develop that more thoroughly with me, and we've highlighted it in pieces already, if there was maybe one lesson that you and I could hopefully instill within the entirety of our nation, might it be this one, that sin is serious enough so that it always has consequences that are dire and extremely hard and difficult. Because isn't it still the case from Proverbs 13, 15, that the way of the transgressor is hard? Satan makes it not look that way, doesn't he? He makes it look as if the way of the transgressor is filled with fun and entertainment and filled with that which is appealing and enticing, and in some ways it is. But what about the consequences? What about the finality of the matter? The way of the transgressor is hard. Notice with me as we consider that perhaps interestingly, the inspired writer as we look at all these things develops it directly as you and I point to the cross. How serious is sin really? How terrible is it really? If ever we have a tendency to forget, all we need to do is remember the cross on which our Savior died. That's how serious sin is. That is how great the affliction that comes with it for that was so serious that the Savior had to go to the cross. Did He not pray with earnestness, Father, if it be Thy will, let this cup pass from me. Prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the previous evening. If there had been any other way, if there had been any other plan, if there had been any other opportunity, he wouldn't have had to go to the cross. But there was no other. If human beings were going to be forgiven, if human beings were going to have sins remitted, then he had to go to the cross. Paul put it like this in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. As Paul discussed and highlighted the grandeur and the marvelous nature of the Lord's sacrifice, he stated it like this, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if we were justified, Paul goes on to say, then we were able to follow Him with faithfulness each day. Commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. You and I were the ones alienated from Him. We were the ones guilty of the very vices, at least in principle of which they and the ancient people of Judah had been. We were estranged from Him, separated from His love, His grandeur, and His greatness. And yet He sent Jesus to the cross. In the very next chapter, Paul then uses that very idea to challenge every one of us. And he challenges us with this observation. In Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. 
But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. And being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Isn't that a great way to conclude that little brief paragraph? Every one of us have a choice to make. Either we are servants of sin unto death, or we are servants of righteousness unto life. There is no third alternative. Paul quickly notes that their opportunity had vested itself in their approach to the doctrine. He said, you had been servants of sin, but you have now obeyed from the heart that form of teaching or doctrine revealed, and as a result thereof, you've become the servant of righteousness. I know I speak before many tonight, and we are so thankful that we've become servants of righteousness. But lest we ever forget the seriousness of sin, don't forget the other alternative, sin unto death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And didn't James state it like this? Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. James 1, verses 13 to 15. Maybe as we close that particular slide, you and I notice so easily that God has invested within His church a weekly reminder about the cross. And that should help us appreciate the enormity of sin as we partake of that unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. And our mind goes back to the scene of the cross and we discern His body isn't that a remarkable consideration of just what the Lord did for my sins and yours? The first lesson then tonight, the greatness of sin. But oh, what blessing came through Christ. What else does Lamentations have for you and for me to consider? May I submit that as we transition to this one, we have hinted at this not only last Sunday evening, but in other considerations of these minor and major prophets of the Old Testament. But it seems as though they're reminded so directly in the book of Lamentations. Namely, the sadness of falsely placed hope. Isn't it great to consider hope? You and I are saved by hope, Romans 8.24. That has in mind the consideration and the thought of we're looking for something better, something sweeter, something finer. And there is but one ultimate hope, isn't there? Didn't Paul say in the Ephesian letter, there is one body and one spirit even as you're called in one hope of your calling. As we think about that one hope described in Ephesians 4 verse 4, that one hope of course is what ultimately you and I wish to be able to be in heaven. All the toils and the difficulties and the afflictions that have sundered our way here will long since have passed. We'll be able to enjoy the rest referred to in Revelation 14, 13. And we'll be able to appreciate the golden city described in Revelation 21. To consider all those things, consider the opposite state for a moment. What about putting your hope in something that ultimately is false? What about resting all the hope that you have on ultimately what is insufficient to bear it? You and I often know what a weak foundation can do. The structure that's built on it will crumble. At least it'll not have the sturdiness and the rigidity that one would demand of it. Very much, of course, like that house built on the sand our Lord referenced in Matthew chapter 7. 
as you and I develop it here, look at what the people of Judah had fallen into. I would help you see with me for a moment, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse number 3. Keep in mind now the same gentleman that wrote Lamentations also wrote Jeremiah. It's the same man and he's describing a state of affairs that is so very illuminating. Jeremiah 7, verse 3. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The people thought that they have placed the entirety of their hope in that building. As long as that building was standing, they were fine and all was well. They put their treasure, its gold, its metal, its wood, its finery, in the exquisiteness of it. There is where their hopes lay. Thus, they directly would say to Jeremiah, We've been to the temple. We've been to the temple. Nothing more in their mind needed to be said. Might we ask, was your heart in it when you went to the temple? Did you worship the Lord in faithfulness and in truth when you went to the temple? Were you striving to follow His ways each and every day as you, of course, were motivated by what happened at the temple? The answer you and I know is no. They would leave the temple and go worship their false gods. They would leave the temple and ignore His word. They would leave the temple and fail to appreciate God's demands of them. Their heart was not in it. And for that reason, we notice their hope was falsely placed. Can you imagine for just a moment what it would have been like if your hopes had been in that temple and you stood at a distance and watched the Babylonians burn it to the ground? What would you have thought? You would have been left with a hollow, empty feeling if that temple and the structure of it was everything to you. And we can't question its importance but if they could not see beyond that to the God who organized it and to the God who gave commandment relative to it, and there's where many of them were having problem. We've been to the temple. We've been to the temple. Look with me further as we notice Lamentations 2 verse 14. Some of what had gone on in the various so-called places of worship had been false activities. The prophets had told what was not true. Jeremiah in chapter 5 verse 31 had commented like this. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means and my people love to have it so. If you and I can put that into the vernacular of our day, the preachers were preaching what was not true, the others who were encouraging them to do it and the people loved every minute of it. It was false though from the very outset, wasn't it? They weren't grounded in that which was the Word of God. They had placed their hopes in false things and in false places. As you and I look further, we notice how wrong they were, and Jeremiah pointed it out to them. Consider that interesting statement he made in Jeremiah 9, verses 1 through 3. Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah said, I'd cry all the time if it would do any good. And then he identified why. We are strong in the land, but not for truth. They were strong in other ways, arguably militarily, arguably educationally, but they weren't strong for the truth. And Jeremiah said, that makes us weak as branch water. And they were, weren't they? Wasn't it true Ezekiel made that comment in Ezekiel chapter 7? They were weak as water when it came to spiritual matters. 
this book of Lamentations hits close to home sometimes, doesn't it? What about our land and what about our congregation here? May it never be said of us that we're weak as water spiritually. May it be described of us that unlike them, we are valiant and strong for truth. And may it be highlighted that we as a people are those who know the Word. Jesus did say that those who appreciate that teaching, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, John 8, 32. Sad to say, they didn't recognize that early enough, and so they went to captivity. As you come near the bottom of that slide, you'll notice a whole host of passages reminding them of what ought to have been the case. And of course, similar things come before you and before me today. In Psalm 119, verse number 2, God's demand of them that the whole heart should be involved in the service. Not just some external appearance at a particular place like the temple, but where's your heart? Are you serving God faithfully? And many of them weren't. What about you and me today? Do we come together at a building like this and think, I've been to the church building, I've been to the church building. But is my heart in the teachings that the Lord has set before us? And do I strive to set aside those matters that are sinful and to follow Him with directness and love? We're told, aren't we, that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. That love is far beyond the bounds of a structure like this one. If this building, unfortunately, we hope it does, but if it were to burn, you and I would be happy to meet faithfully in another location and carry out in a way He's commanded the services as we ought to do them. It is an amazing thing, isn't it, to contemplate that some of the principles we find in a book like Lamentations does bring a challenge even to you and to me today. Surely, as we close that slide, isn't it sad to see the falsely placed hope and what it brings? I would call to your attention Philippians 1.21 and Colossians 3 verse 3. Paul addressing congregations in the New Testament era and reminding them about the one hope and the nature of the faithful fidelity that God demands of those that are His people. It was to those individuals in the Philippian letter, again in Philippians 1 verse number 21, Paul stated to them, he could use himself as an example, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He understood that his life and his sojourn upon this planet was a life directed, motivated, ultimately and always in service to the Master Himself. And he knew that that was not falsely placed. One last thought on that slide. The very last comment touching the place of God's Word. We do know so well that there's no way to know the mind of God except God tells us. That is the text and the learning of 1 Corinthians 2 verses 9 through 13. How can a man know a man except the man tell him? Paul uses that thought to remind us. And how shall we know the things of God except the Spirit of God tell him? We have what the Spirit of God has revealed. And so we can study it with carefulness and with diligence. And we can understand then what is not a falsely placed hope but yet a hope that is sturdy and strong and true and a hope that's filled with all the glory that the Scriptures have in description of it.
these two lessons so far tonight have awfully interesting statements that have brought us to some considerations of the day. What about if we look at one more? Also found in the book of Lamentations. I would ask you to notice that there is a restoration. So far throughout this series, we have so often spoken about this trip into Babylonian captivity that was coming and that had already begun. But I would ask you to notice the lesson text that I had asked read tonight, and Eddie read that just a moment ago. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 21. Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. Renew our days as of old. Jeremiah understood so well that just as surely as the captivity was now underway and they were going to spend some time in that foreign land, there was also hope on the horizon in the sense that God was going to bring them back. He was going to restore them to their place and they were going to be infused and instilled yet one more time with the sweetness of that old law of Moses and be able to worship Him in the way that they wanted. A restoration an opportunity to be renewed. As you and I look at some of these considerations, you'll notice that in chapter 3, verse number 40, we have this plea from Jeremiah. Lamentations 3, verse number 40. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. We have transgressed and have rebelled. Thou hast not pardoned. Thou hast covered with anger and persecuted us. Thou hast slain, thou hast not pitied. Thou hast covered thyself with a cloud that our prayer should not pass through. Thou hast made us as the offscouring and refuse in the midst of the people. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare has come upon us, desolation and destruction. You notice in that particular set of verses, Jeremiah has held out the thought, We have sinned. God wasn't arbitrary in the punishment that He brought. They had earned captivity and they were getting what they had justly earned. However, you'll notice that there is a restoration held out for them. A restoration, a time to return. It seems to me that's a worthwhile thought to use to close this little series of lessons. The sweetness of a restoration. To turn again to the Lord to give consideration about that principle as it's embodied even today. We stated earlier in the lesson tonight about those overwhelmed and overcoming sin. If we left the saga at that point, it sounds hopeless. I have rebelled against God, for instance. I have committed a transgression of His will. Is there any hope for a restoration? Is there any opportunity to return to Him? We know so well that it's not He that left me, it's I that left Him. You and I are the ones that are guilty of sin, and you and I are the ones who have transgressed His commandment. I'm reminded of those famous words of the woman of Tekoa in 2 Samuel 14, 14. You may remember she gave that sage advice. She said, The Lord hath made provision that those banished should be able to return. Thanks be unto God that there is a plan of salvation. There's a plan that includes remission, and there's a plan that involves forgiveness. 
The people of Judah, of course, they were going to spend 70 years in Babylonian captivity. And ultimately, many years later, under the efforts and the work of Ezra and Zerubbabel and others, they would return and they would rebuild that temple. Not in the exquisite way the first one had been. But nonetheless, Ezra chapter 3 tells us of that rebuilt temple. Finally, you'll notice that you and I can now pull all of that together and say this. What about individuals today? Once faithful Christians, but then begin to behave in a way that's not according to the Word of God. They fall under the very consideration of that text in 2 Peter 2, verses 20 to 22, don't they? They have escaped the pollutions of the world. But the problem is they have again become entangled therein, and in so doing, they have forfeited that blessing of salvation that they once had known. Peter identifies with such sadness that state and describes it like this. The latter end with them is worse than the beginning. That's thought-provoking, isn't it? The latter end with them, worse than the beginning. We might now into a circumstance like that when I ask, is it then hopeless for them or is there opportunity for God's banished to be returned? Just like it was for the people of Judah, there's thanks be unto God an opportunity. That plan of salvation that sets forth the demands of God and if they attend thereto, faithfully complying therewith, that they can have those sins forgiven. Several verses to which I would point your attention. The Bible's teaching on remission. The Bible's teaching on forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 7, through Christ, of course, in Him we have forgiveness of our sins. We have remission therefrom. That's quoted almost verbatim in Colossians 1 as well. Whether it be in those verses or we give thought to that scene of the cross that we've mentioned earlier tonight and the considerations of the blood that He shed, that precious blood, the very blood that so often is spoken of on the day of Pentecost, a timeless scene took place. Individuals who had had a part to play in putting to death the very Son of God. Individuals who only a few weeks earlier had been guilty of this. Peter and the others preached with magnificence and power. Closing the sermon like this. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified both Lord and Christ. It says, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Can you hear the urgency in their voice? Can you hear the greatness and the plea in their consideration? Peter knew exactly what to say. By inspiration, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Why? For the remission of sins. It was possible for a sin, even the sin of killing the Son of God, to be forgiven. Today, God is able to forgive and is happy to do it. But we must come on His terms, making appeal to the blood of His Son and following the directions that His Son has given us. I shouldn't expect to be forgiven on my terms. I shouldn't even be expected to be forgiven, say, on your terms. It must be God's terms. For His law is the one I've transgressed. His law is the one I violated. And it was He who said that we must believe in the greatness of His Son's name. 
Jesus Himself said, Except ye believe that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. John 8 verse 24. That belief must be an active and working thing because after all, even the devils believe, John and James 2.19, but they tremble. Their belief does not propagate into faithful work. Belief alone, though, must be followed with repentance and understanding of turning aside from that life of sin, the activities that have been with it. Did Jesus say, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish, Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. That idea of repentance brings us to consider the beauty of a confession. Perhaps it's almost tempting to overlook the vitality of that good confession. Paul referred to it in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, didn't he? When you and I make that profession, I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is the Son of God. That is truly a grand statement. And its declaration is the very thing upon which the church is built. Matthew 16, 18. It's the very truth, of course, upon which your life of faith and mine must be built. For all authority is invested in Him. Colossians 3, 17. Then we must be baptized. Baptism is where we see that element of forgiveness reach its culmination. There's where we finally reach the blood. There's where we finally have our sins washed away. For that's what Paul was told in Acts twenty two sixteen. And now why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins calling on the name of the Lord. This man was in sin until that moment. And when he was baptized, those sins were washed away. The baptistry waters behind me are ready. We'd be delighted to celebrate and rejoice with anyone tonight that would be of a position and would have a yearning in heart to want the blood of Christ to forgive your sins. Surely, if you think about those things with me, He prepares us to close this slide and close this series by reminding ourselves of that beautiful salvation in Christ. Revelation 1 verse 5 still says that He has washed us from our sins in His blood. To be washed, to be made cleansed, to be made pure and whole, and yet the blood of Christ can do that. It may be that there's someone in this audience who, though you were baptized a long time ago, and you've known the riches of living in faithful harmony with His Word, but maybe in recent months or recent weeks... Your life has become clouded with some activity, something that you don't feel good about, something as you've studied more thoroughly you've come to realize is not what it ought to be. Maybe you haven't been a good example to those about you, perhaps your family, perhaps co-workers or others. And tonight, tonight you want to be restored. You want the restoration, much like what Judah would one day enjoy. Don't think you can wait 70 years. You may not live that long. God may not let the world stand that long. Tonight's the opportunity. We'd be happy during the song we're about to sing. If we could be of help to you, whether it be an alien sinner, one who would like to become a Christian tonight, what a great night it'd be. You would forever remember this day, not for the Ides of March and the ancient statement of the Romans, but you'd remember it as your spiritual birthday, the day when you became a New Testament Christian. Tonight, if we could help you in that way or to be rededicated to the cause of the Master, don't remain in your current state, please. But in urgency, why not come and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.